I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Those words, according to, in Greek, are very important. It is the word kata, and the word kata in this verse carries the idea of something that is dominating or something that is subjugating, and he's declaring from the very outset, I am being dominated, I am being subjugated by the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And this was very important because at that particular moment, life was being threatened for all believers. So Paul begins by saying, we are dominated, we are subjugated, we are conquered by a promise of life. Then in verse 2, he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, then he gives his salutation, grace, mercy, and peace. And this is a diversion from most of Paul's salutations. Usually Paul says grace and peace be unto you. By the way, do you know why he says that? Because one was a Greek greeting, the other was a Hebrew greeting. The word grace is the word charis, and that's the way the Greeks greeted each other. When they would walk up to each other, even among unbelievers, they would say charis. It was the equivalent of saying, hello, grace be to you. That's the way they greeted each other in the Greek world. But in the Jewish world, they said shalom. That here is the word peace. And by saying grace and peace, not only was Paul saying grace and peace be unto you, but in one salutation, he was embracing all of his Greek listeners, all of his Hebrew listeners. With this one phrase, he was wrapping his arms around the entire world, Gentiles and Jews. But in this verse, he adds the word peace. I'm sorry, the word mercy. And that is very unusual for Paul because, again, Paul usually simply says grace and peace be unto you. But here he says grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. And at the particular time that Paul was writing to Timothy, Timothy was really undergoing life-threatening situations. The church was under assault. I'll explain that assault to you in just a moment. But because Timothy and the church was under assault, they needed to hear about more than grace and more than peace. And Paul tucked mercy between the grace and the peace. And I believe this is so important because it tells me and you that when a person feels like they're really under stress or they're in a life-threatening situation, something difficult to deal with, God doesn't just give you grace and peace, but He tucks a little mercy in the middle of it. God always extends mercy to those that are troubled, and that's what you find in this verse. And then notice that He goes on and He says in verse 3, I thank my God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing... I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Without ceasing in Greek means without a pause, without an interval, which means Timothy and the church of Ephesus was on his mind all the time in so much. He says, I'm making mention of you in my prayers. And the word mention here is a form of the Greek word menea. And the word menea is the Greek word for a statue, a monument, or some kind of big statue that would remind you of what someone did or about an event. Well, think about it. What is the purpose of a statue or a monument? 
A statue reminds you of someone. A monument may remind you of a specific event. And every time you see that statue, you're reminded of what a person did. Every time you see the monument, you're reminded of what happened there. And Paul now uses this word menea, and it could literally be translated in my prayers, I'm building statues and monuments of you, which means Paul meant, I am stacking the throne room of heaven with statues and monuments of you in my prayers. Everywhere God looks, he sees you there. And then he looks over here and he sees you there and he sees you there and he sees you there. Why? Because I am building statues and monuments of you in heaven with my prayers so that God is continually confronted by you and what you are facing. That must have been such a comfort to the heart of Timothy to know that Paul was interceding for him so fervently and was stacking the throne room of heaven filled with his images. I remember when my grandmother, Renner, was getting very old. One day she said to me, ah, Rick, she said, I'm of no good. I can't do anything but sit in this chair and pray for you. I said, Grandma, that might be the best thing you ever did for me. Please keep calling my name out to God in prayer. And you know what's interesting? You find this same word, Menea, here translated remembrance in Acts chapter 10, when the Bible says that Cornelius' prayers had come up as a memorial before God. It's the very same word, the word Menea. And it tells us that when we pray effectively and when we pray in faith, we literally construct things in the sight of God that God sees that God is confronted with, and our prayers stand as ever-living monuments, reminders for God to not forget us or whoever we're praying for and to move in our behalf. And Paul said to Timothy, I'm loading the throne room of heaven filled with statues and monuments of you so God will be confronted with you and with what you're dealing with right now. And then he goes on and he says in verse 4, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. But notice he says, being mindful of thy tears. And the word tears here is plural. It wasn't one teardrop. Timothy was really crying. In fact, you could translate this, being mindful of your sobbing. And some scholars say that when Paul had received a letter from Timothy, he could see the teardrops of Timothy stained on the parchment. Why was Timothy praying? Why was he undergoing a life-threatening situation? Well, let me give you a little history. Now, hold on, because this is going to be quite a bit of history, but it's important for you to have this history to understand the background to 2 Timothy. When you come to 2 Timothy, the situation is very, very different from 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, the church in Ephesus that Timothy is leading is prospering, it's growing. In fact, the church in Ephesus was growing so fast, one scholar has estimated 50% of Ephesus had come to Christ. They were living in what we would call revival. But between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there is an interlude of three years. And in those three years, Nero went crazy and he began persecuting believers all over the Roman Empire, particularly in the big, big cities. And by the time that you come to 2 Timothy, the church is really under assault and people are dying for their faith. And fire always reveals the true commitment of people. It's very easy to be a fair-weather friend or a fair-weather Christian when it costs you nothing. 
when suddenly your faith is going to cost you something, or you're going to lose your friends, or you might lose your job, or you might lose your reputation, you might even lose your life, that kind of fire reveals how authentic people really are. And in 2 Timothy, Timothy has been devastated because people that he thought were really committed have abandoned him and they have walked out. They've walked out on the church. They've abandoned Timothy. He feels like he has been stabbed in the back. He's wounded by it all. And not only that, he's not so sure that he might be arrested. He might be arrested for his faith because he is the most visible leader in the city of Ephesus. And if they could arrest him and if they could kill him miserably, it would scare all the other Christians out of their faith and back to the pagan temples. And Timothy knows all of that is a prospect that is in front of him. And he's taken with a spirit of fear. We know that because of verse 7, where Paul says to him, God has not given you a spirit of fear. By the way, the word spirit really is the word for a spirit. Fear is a spirit. You can feel it when fear comes into the room. It is spiritual. It will throw you into a state of panic. And the word fear is the Greek word delay, which describes something that causes you to be a coward or something that causes you to want to retreat, to not face reality. And Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. He says, God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But when you have a spirit of fear, you cannot operate in power. You really can't walk in love, the Greek word agape, because you're afraid of everybody. They've hurt you. You're wounded. You're afraid that you're going to be wounded again. So you really can't operate in love as you should. And rather than have a sound mind, you have an unsound mind, a mind that thinks irrationally, a mind that imagines things are going to happen that could never happen in a million years, but your mind has become unsound, it's become irrational because you're being controlled by a spirit of fear. And Timothy had a spirit of fear. And if anybody ever had a legitimate reason to have fear, it really was Timothy. But Timothy had written a letter to the Apostle Paul, and he had poured his heart out, said, Paul, I'm hurt. People that I thought would always be faithful, they've abandoned me, they've walked out on me. Paul, I don't know if I can continue this. And now Paul writes back to him, and that is this letter that we call 2 Timothy. It is his response to Timothy. And he has seen on Timothy's letter to him teardrops. He knows that Timothy is crying. Nero has lost his mind. But let me give you a little history about the imperial family. It all began with Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. He had a fling with Cleopatra. He even had a son by Cleopatra whose name was Caesarea. He was killed in the Roman Senate as he was stabbed in the back brutally by 44 senators. And immediately after that, another man came to power whose name was Augustus, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And Augustus declared himself to be God and ruled the Roman Empire for 56 years. But after his death, his adopted son, whose name was Tiberius, became the ruler of the Roman Empire. 
And my friends, Tiberius was demented and he was perverted. In fact, Tiberius was so perverted that eventually he retreated to the island of Capri, just off the coast of Italy, which he turned into a sex orgy island. And orgies took place all the time there. He nearly never left there. And there on the island was his nephew, whose name was Caligula. And Caligula was subjected to all kinds of sexual perversion and sexual abuse. It was horrible what Caligula went through. But finally, Tiberius died after ruling for 22 years. And guess who became the next ruler of the Roman Empire? Caligula. And Caligula was carrying in him all of that hurt, all of those wounds, all of those abuses. And now he sat on the throne as the most powerful person in the world. And even though for the first six months of his rule, he did pretty fine, he got real sick in the sixth month of his reign. And after that fever left him, he was deranged. He was insane. In fact, Caligula was so insane, he began to see himself like he was the Greek god Cronus. Cronus was a Greek god that was upset with his sister because she became pregnant. So when she gave birth to the babies, Cronus ate the babies. Now I know that's just horrible, but Caligula was so demented, he saw himself as Cronus. So when his sister had babies, he ate her babies. Then he killed the sister. He had other, one other living sister, and this is very important to the story. Her name was Agrippina. He had an incestuous relationship with Agrippina. But Caligula was so foul, he was so twisted that finally his soldiers could not take any more of it. And after ruling for 14 years, they murdered him. And when they murdered him, then Claudius became ruler of the Roman Empire. Claudius was the uncle of Caligula and was the great grandnephew of Augustus Caesar. He ruled the Roman Empire for 14 years. And guess what? He married a woman named Agrippina, who was the sister of Caligula. You're going to see Agrippina shows up again and again. She was the sister of Caligula. She was sexually abused by her brother Caligula, who was the Roman emperor. Then Claudius became the emperor, the same Agrippina, the sister of Caligula, who had been abused, married Claudius. And when she came into that marriage, she had already been married once, so she had a son from a previous marriage. His name was Nero. Well, Claudius already had a son. His name was Britannicus. And according to law, Britannicus would become the next ruler of the Roman Empire. But Agrippina, who was a very conniving, powerful, and manipulative woman, a woman that had been abused, and abusers usually become abusers, she began to manipulate the situation and had her husband Claudius, the emperor of the Roman Empire, killed by feeding him a batch of poisonous mushrooms. When Claudius died, she immediately declared Nero to be the new ruler of the Roman Empire. Agrippina was Nero's mother. So now we see this woman moving through three different administrations. First, she was the sister of Caligula, who was the Roman emperor. Then she was the wife of Claudius, who was the next ruler of the Roman empire. Then Nero becomes the ruler of the Roman empire. She is his mother. It is amazing. And she was so conniving and so manipulative that she tried to manipulate Nero and through him rule the whole Roman Empire. Well, according to history, 
The first five years of Nero's rule, he was pretty normal. But after about five years, he went crazy. And just so you understand, he became the most powerful man in the world when he was 16 years old. Can you imagine giving all power in the world to a 16-year-old, telling him that he is God and there's nothing that he cannot have and cannot do? That's who Nero was. And Nero was so infatuated with himself and his own deity that he declared he was going to tear down the old city of Rome and build a new city in its place, and he was going to call it Neropolis, after his name, Nero. And the very middle of Neropolis, he wanted to build himself a new palace, which he called the Golden Palace. Well, the Roman Senate would not let him do that. They wouldn't let him do that. They said, what are you talking about? The city of Rome is ancient. It's part of our history. You want to tear down the central section of Rome, which is, by the way, where all the senators lived, so you can build yourself a big new house? And they said no. So he went out to his palace just outside of town, and from there, he dispatched servants into the city of Rome with the instruction to start a fire. And they started a fire in the big circus where all the chariot races took place. And the embers of that fire began to blow across the city of Rome. And Rome, though it had great imperial buildings made of stone, had thousands and thousands of little shanties built of wood, hay, and stubble where all the slaves lived. All of those little shanties caught on fire. And before they knew it, the whole city of Rome was on fire, particularly the section where Nero wanted to build his big house. When the fire was finally extinguished, the area where Nero wanted to build his house was completely clean of all of those houses. It had all been reduced to rubbish and embers because of the fire. And immediately Nero began building his golden palace, which he finally constructed, that was so large, it was 300 acres. Now, if you think somebody has a big house, nobody has a big house compared to the house that Nero built 300 acres. And because Nero believed that he was God, he erected in the middle of it a statue that was 90 feet tall that looked like it was the god Helos, but instead of the face of Helos, it had the face of Nero, looking like Nero was the one that brought light and glory to the planet. And finally, the Senate said, hey, we, we, we know what happened. Nero burned down this city so he could build that house. And they called him in for his own trial and his own execution. And on his way to the Senate, he concocted a very diabolical idea. I will blame that new group in town called Christians for the fire. I'll shift the blame to them. Now, I just want to tell you the reason I gave you all the imperial history is because I want you to understand that if anybody could be nutty naturally, it would have been Nero. His predecessors were nutty. Caligula was nutty. His mother was crazy. In fact, his mother was so crazy that eventually he had his own mother murdered just to get her out of his life. So if anybody could be nutty naturally, it would have been Nero. But Nero clearly was also demonically influenced. And when he finally stood in front of the Senate, 
He said, how could you accuse me of burning down the city of Rome? I will tell you who burned down the city of Rome. And the sinister said, tell us, give us proof. He said, that group in town, that new group called Christians, they've been standing on our street corners preaching. They are the ones who burned down the city of Rome. Number one, he said, Christians are anti-government. They're anti-government. They are talking about another king and another kingdom. Of course, they were talking about Jesus, that he made it look like they were subverters of government. That is what Christians were accused of. It's interesting that Christians are being accused of that again today. He said, number two, he said, Christians are lawbreakers. Christians are being accused of that again today. But the reason he said they were lawbreakers is because Christians were meeting illegally, and indeed they were. The scripture says to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but Christians were not given permission to meet, so every time they met, they were breaking the law, and they had to choose. Are we going to obey the law of man? Are we going to obey the law of God? And my friends, we're facing a time in our lives when we have to choose whose law we're going to obey, and they chose to obey the law of God, but it made them lawbreakers. So first he said they're governmental subverters. Secondly, they're lawbreakers. Thirdly, he said they're sexual deviants. Sexual deviants? He said, yes. They practice something called a love feast. Well, we know what a love feast is. That's where we meet together and have communion or perhaps we even have a meal together. But in his mind, he was saying Christians were sexual deviants and were having orgies. Well, to make sure you understand how graphic he must have been in this charge, Nero himself was quite sexually twisted. He was married to a man. He had killed his wife. He kicked her in the stomach when she was pregnant because he was angry. He felt such grief for killing her that he married a man who he ordered to dress like his dead wife to kind of deal with his guilt that he had killed her. So he's married to a man who's dressed like his wife. My friends, the mess we're seeing in the world today is nothing new. Transgenderism, people that are confused about their gender, it's always been. And there's evidence that Nero had even married another man at one point. We're talking about people really, really messed up. And now a sexual deviant is accusing Christians of being sexual perverts. What did he say for a pervert to accuse others of being perverted? He had to say something really raunchy. But wait, there's more. He said Christians are cannibals. He really said that. He said, yes, the leader of their sect, Jesus of Nazareth, said, except you eat my blood and drink my flesh, you will have no part in me. And they have an event where they eat flesh and drink blood. Of course, he was referring to communion. But on the basis of this, he charged Christians with cannibalism. And dear friends, Christians had to fight allegations of cannibalism for 200 years after that because Nero had been so convincing. But wait, there's one more charge. He said, why would you think I burned down the city when these Christians have been standing on our street corners publicly preaching and declaring that one day in the future a big fire is coming? They told us a big fire was coming and we should have listened to them more carefully because they were giving us a clue 
that they were going to start a fire and burn down the city of Rome. And by the time that Nero was finished bringing these allegations against believers, the Senate believed him. They believed him. And immediately, the first governmental persecution began. It was in the year 64. Now, that's important for you to understand because Christians were not originally persecuted by the government. Originally, it was a religious persecution of the Jews against the Christians. The first governmental persecution began in the year 64 after Nero delivered all of these allegations to the Roman Senate. And suddenly, Christians became hunted like wild animals. They were burned at the stake. They were decapitated. They were rounded up. They were put into prison. They were fed to animals in amphitheaters. It was horrible, horrible what was going on. But all of this happened due to Nero looking for a scapegoat to blame the fire on. All of that is the background to the book of 2 Timothy. So now, Timothy is leading the big church in Ephesus that has never known governmental persecution. It's had to do with religious persecution, but never state persecution. But now, state persecution has erupted across the empire, particularly in the big cities. And the biggest cities in the Roman Empire were Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and Ephesus, and these four cities especially were under assault. They were rounding up believers. So in this moment of fire, many people that Timothy thought would be faithful to the end said, see you later, pastor. It was fun serving Jesus when it didn't cost us anything. But hey, this is a different game now. This is going to cost us something. And people that he thought he could depend on bailed out on him and walked out and there he is standing, leading the biggest church in the world. Church of Ephesus was the biggest in the world, which is now declining so rapidly they can hardly keep track of how many people are leaving the church because of a spirit of fear. And that is why Timothy has written this letter to Paul and has said, Paul, please help me. I am so hurt. I'm taken with the spirit of fear. I don't know how to deal with my church. I don't know how to choose new leaders because I've been so hurt by my former leaders. What's the chance that I won't be deceived and stabbed in the back again? He's pouring his heart out in this letter to Paul. And where is Paul? Paul is in prison in Rome. <laughs> Timothy is a free man. And he's writing to Paul, who is in jail in Rome. Why is he in jail? Because the Roman government rounded up the principal Christian leaders to accuse them of being the chief arsonists of the fire that burned down the city of Rome. Now Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. He is not being persecuted as a Christian. He has been imprisoned on the charge of arson. Arson, which, by the way, is why most Christians in those days were burned at the stake. In the Roman Empire, you died according to your crime. If you were a thief and you stole with your hand, they cut your hand off. If you were an arson, then they burned you. And that's why many, many Christians were burned at the stake. And now Paul is in prison in Rome... And the big news in Rome 
is they found one of the chief arsonists that planned the fire that burned down the city of Rome. And because Paul is in prison, he can't even defend himself. The fake news is out there. It's being written on all the walls and all the public places. We found one of the chief arsonists. We've got him in jail. The whole city of Rome is talking about this arsonist, Paul, that is in prison. And now because Paul is a Roman citizen, he has the right to receive mail, and he's received this letter from Timothy, and Timothy is writing to Paul. Paul is absolutely facing death. And Timothy says, Paul, you just can't possibly understand what I feel. You just can't understand the spirit of fear that I'm dealing with, the hurt that I feel. He's writing to Paul, who's sitting in jail, facing death. It's amazing to me that we all think that our problem is worse than someone else's. My friends, your problem is never worse than somebody else's. You're really not in that bad a shape. You just have a spirit of fear. But now he writes to Paul, who really does have serious problems, and says, help me. And so now Paul writes back, 2 Timothy says, I saw your letter, I saw your tears, I know that you're sobbing and you're weeping. And then he says, Timothy, I need to remind you of a few things. Listen to this. Verse 5, this is a very unusual statement. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt in thy, first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that it's in thee also. Then he says in verse 6, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou mightest stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now think about it. Timothy is crying out for help. Please help me. Please help me. Send me a letter. Communicate with me. Tell me how I'm going to deal with my situation. And how does Paul begin communicating to Timothy? He says, hmm, Timothy, I can remember the unfeigned faith that is in you that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. He begins reminding Timothy of his past. People usually deal with the spirit of fear when all they're doing is looking at the future and something is foreboding, something looks challenging, and they're forgetting what they've already been through in the past. My friends, never forget the works of the Lord in your life. It gives you a launching pad to deal with your future and to launch into your future. But when you forget God's faithfulness in the past, it causes you to tremble when you look at the future. But if all you're doing is looking at the future, my friends, you need to put everything on pause and turn around and rehearse all the things you've already walked through. You've had moments in your past that you didn't think you would ever survive. You didn't know if you'd be able to pay your bills, but you did. You didn't know where you would live, but you have a place to live. You didn't know how you would eat, but the fact is you've eaten and eaten and eaten until fact today you probably need to lose weight. You've done all right. Even though you've walked through many, 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 many difficult things, you walked through all of them. Faith worked. God was faithful. And if you walk through all of those events into your present it will so stir you up that you'll be able to look at your future with confidence. And that's why he's reminding Timothy of the past. He said, Timothy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, 
It was the equivalent of saying, hey, Timothy, put everything on pause for a moment. Let me remind you of a few things. I knew your grandmother. Your grandmother had a real, living, unfeigned faith. She went through so many things and came through them, and God was never unfaithful to her. God was faithful to your grandmother. And by the way, I also knew your mother. And your mother had the same kind of unfeigned, unbreakable, real, authentic faith. Faith worked for your mother. God was always faithful to your mother. He's walking Timothy through his past heritage saying, God was faithful here. God was faithful here. God was faithful here. And I'm convinced this same unfeigned faith is in you also. Well, what does the word unfeigned mean? Well, believe it or not, the word unfeigned would be better translated a non-hypocritical faith. A non-hypocritical faith. To understand that, you have to understand where the word hypocrite comes from. The word hypocrite is the old Greek word for an actor who wore a mask. In the Greek and Roman world, when actors stood on the stage and played their parts, they wore masks. They played parts, they wore masks, and to help you understand, I brought a real mask from the Greek world. This is very, very old. This precedes the first century, so this little mask is more than 2,000 years old. This was worn by an actor on a stage. The actors wore masks. They pretended to be who they were not. They would say anything do anything for the applause of the crowd. And for that reason, actors were considered to be morally the very lowest people in society because they would say anything, they would do anything for the applause of the crowd. They were considered to be people with no integrity whatsoever because they just panned to the whims of the audience. And they wore masks pretending to be who they were not. So the word hypocrite really describes somebody that is bogus, somebody that is a pretender, somebody that is a fake, or somebody just wearing a mask. Keep that in your mind when you read every time that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he calls them hypocrites. That's where this comes from. The word hypocrite describes an actor wearing a mask. And when Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, it was the equivalent of saying, I know who you guys are. You're just actors. You don't mean one thing you're saying. You're just playing for those that are watching. You're just playing to the whims of the crowd, wanting their applause. You're nothing but actors. You're bogus. You're pretenders. You're just a bunch of charlatans. You don't mean the thing that you say. You're just donning a mask because people are watching. You are inauthentic. Well, now we come to this verse. He says, you don't have a hypocritical faith. You have an unfeigned faith, which means your faith is not hypocritical. On the contrary, it is authentic. It is the real deal. Your faith is the real deal. And the faith that you have is the same faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois. By the way, that word dwelt is the Greek word describes living in a house, thriving in a house. It means his grandmother had such a strong faith, it lived in her. It thrived in her. Timothy saw that in his grandmother. He said the same living, thriving faith was in your mother. It was passed from her 
mother to her, and now it's been passed from your mother to you. And here we also find the great privilege of passing faith from generation to generation. And if you're the first in your generation to believe, that means you have the awesome honor of passing your faith to another generation. But Paul says, Timothy, 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 you're just having the spirit of fear because of a bad memory. Put it all on pause. Turn around. Look at your past. Remember God's faithfulness to your family. Your grandmother had a real authentic faith. Your mother had a real authentic faith. God was with them, walked through everything with them. And I'm convinced the same kind of faith is in you, Timothy. You have a real, unbendable, unbreakable faith. And then he says in verse 6, Wherefore I put you in remembrance, that thou mayest stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. But the Greek actually says it very differently. How does it say it? The Greek says, Wherefore I'm reminding you of all of these things. Are you listening to me? I want you to get this. Wherefore, I'm reminding you of all of these things. What things? That your grandmother had a real unbendable, unbreakable faith. She gave it to her daughter, your mother, who also had an unbendable, unbreakable faith. God's record with your family has always been faithful, 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 faithful. And now I'm reminding you of all of these things. And the Greek says that by your remembering them, you will stir up the gift of God that is in you by the putting on of my hands. Paul says, by, remember, by remembering them, you'll stir up the gift of God. Hmm. Stir up is a Greek word which means to rekindle the embers, take a poker, stick it into the embers, begin to work those embers and stir those coals until finally the fire begins burning again. You can't do that unless you have a poker. Well, what is the poker that God has put in your hands? Memory. That's what he says here. That by your remembering, stirring the coals, going back to reactivate those memories again, that by your remembering them, you will stir up the gift of God that is in you by the putting on of my hands. Most people want somebody to lay hands on them in order for them to be stirred up, and that's good. If, if that's possible, that's wonderful. But what are you going to do if there's no one nearby to lay hands on you? That's all right. You're still in good shape because you have memory. You can use your memory to stir yourself up. For example, in my own ministry, I have faced more difficult moments then I have time to tell you about it. I just recently wrote our entire autobiography called Unlikely. Let me tell you, it is unlikely our story. It is unlikely we have survived. It is unlikely what we're doing. And I've had many moments in my life when I have felt like, God, I don't know if I can push through this one. Lord, this assault is so serious. I just don't know. And in those moments, here's what I do. I take Paul's words to mind. I put everything on pause. I say, I'm going to, quit dealing with what I'm facing with right now, I'm going to turn around to remember my past. And I mentally begin to walk through all the things we've already lived through that seemed impossible. Hmm. 
when it seemed that plane was going to crash, but it didn't. When it seemed we didn't have the money to do our ministry and we didn't know how we were going to do it, but God came through. When it looked like the government was against us and there was no hope, but we got through it, I began walking myself through every impossible thing that I've already been through. And by the time that I walked through all of those events up into my current moment, I am so filled with faith that I believe everything is possible. If God could do that, and God could do that, and God could do that, and God could do that, if God's record with me has been faithfulness, 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 then who in the world am I to think this new situation is too big for him or too big for me? Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. By remembering, I stir up the gift of God that is in me. That's what Paul says. He says, hey, Timothy, you want to know why I'm talking to you about your family? It's because I want you to remember a few things. I want you to remember your past. I put you in remembrance of all these things that by your remembering them, remembering them and remembering them, you'll stir up the gift of God that is in you. Your memory is your poker that you can stick into your fire to stir yourself up. And I guarantee you, friend, if you remember everything you've already been through and how God has been faithful, you will look at your new problem and say, this is nothing. If I can get through all of that, I can absolutely get through this. And Paul says, wherefore I put you in remembrance that by your remembering all of these things, thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Then in verse 7 he says, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Again, the word spirit is the Greek word which really describes a spirit. You can feel it when it comes in the room. Immediately the atmosphere changes, the feeling in the room changes. It is a spiritual thing that takes place, and it begins to produce in you fear, again from the Greek word delea, which describes a coward or one who retreats to protect himself. Rather than move forward to deal with life, you try to hide from life. Timothy was trying to hide from his problems rather than deal with them. My friends, that, that just doesn't work. You've got to deal with what's in front of you. And a spirit of fear will cause you to move into a retreat mode. And then he adds, God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The word power is the word dunamis. Now, I know that you've heard that word dunamis. But let me give you some insights to the word dunamis that you may not have heard. The word dunamis is the very Greek word that described a force of nature, like a hurricane. It described a tornado. It would be the word to describe an earthquake. The word dunamis is also the Greek word that was very often used to describe the full might of the advancing Roman army. Rather than retreat in a spirit of fear, when the Spirit of God is operating inside of you, you become a supernatural force of nature. You become like a divine hurricane, a divine tornado to wipe things out that need to be removed. You become like an earthquake to shake things up. When God's power is working in you, you are divinely enabled to march forward and take new territory. All of that's in this word, power. But then he says also God has given you love. 
The word love is the Greek word agape, high-level love. The word agape describes love with no strings attached. It's love that can never be wounded. It can never be disappointed because it has no expectations. My friends, if you've been disappointed by somebody else, probably you were not moving in agape love because when you move in agape love, you're going to love regardless of how people respond or do not respond. Timothy's been hurt by people who abandoned him. He needs to move into high-level love because you can't get hurt when you move in high-level love. And lastly, God's given you a sound mind. I love this in Greek. It's the word sophronismos, from the word sozo, which means to be saved or to be delivered or to be preserved. And the word friend, which is the Greek word for one's intelligence or brains, when you put the two words together. I say the easiest translation of sophronismos, which here is translated a sound mind, is saved brains, where God has given you a delivered head. But when you have a spirit of fear, you're irrational. You're irrational. You're illogical because you're taken with this spirit of fear, but God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a mind that is sophronismos. It is set free. It is delivered. It's healed. It is not to be affected by exterior things. You can lay claim to all of that. And then Paul says in verse 8, and this is where we're going to wrap it up for right now. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. But notice he says, be not thou therefore ashamed. In Greek it is a prohibition. Stop being ashamed. Well, that tells us to what extent a spirit of fear had gripped him. He was ashamed. He was ashamed to be a Christian. People were saying bad things about Christians. He was tempted to be ashamed. And the word ashamed here means to be red-faced. He was blushing with embarrassment because he was a Christian and people were saying such bad things about Christians. And Paul says, stop being ashamed of me and of the Lord. Timothy was even afraid to be associated with Paul. Hey, Paul was a hot topic. He was sitting in prison in Rome. Timothy doesn't even know if he should keep his relationship with Paul because it could cost him his life to be in a relationship with Paul. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, just cut it out. Just cut it out right now. Put an end to this spirit of fear. Stop being ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. And then he says, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now, I know that we're not all wanting to embrace afflictions. But here, Paul said, hey, if you have to deal with hardship, deal with hardship. He said, be thou partaker. Partaker of what? Of the afflictions of the gospel. And sometimes afflictions come with the gospel. We have to remember that we are light bearers and Satan hates the light and he hates those who carry the light. He tries to insult us. He tries to spread rumors about us that are not true. He tries to take us down. My friends, it just comes with the territory. I'm not telling you to run out by faith and accept all these assaults. That assaults come. But the good news is this verse says you can be partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. What? according to the power of God. According to in Greek is this word kata, which describes something that dominates, subjugates, 
or conquers. It means in the middle of all of that hardship, you personally in the midst of all of it can be dominated, subjugated. You can be conquered by the power of God, which means, and this is really the truth. I'm a witness to this. Many people are witnesses to this. History is filled as a testimony to this that when believers suffer for their faith or take a stand and refuse to budge, the power of God shows up. You suffer according to the power of God. So you're not just dealing with it by yourself, but suddenly God's power shows up in the middle of that situation. You are dominated. You are conquered. You're subjugated by the divine power of God, which enables you to be strong even though you may feel like you're in the middle of the fire. 